join me in turning to the book of Nahum, chapter 3. Nahum, chapter number 3. If you were put off by the gruesome nature of Nahum 2 and the judgment it describes, there will be no relief for you in Nahum, chapter number 3. It is challenging at times to find a full-throated, well-balanced presentation of the character of God. Our tendency is to fixate on what we regard to be the superior attributes of his character, his grace, his mercy, his love, and even the forgiveness that flows forth from his grace, mercy, and love. And we should relish these attributes of God's character. We should rejoice in his grace. We should rejoice in his mercy. We should rejoice in his loving kindness toward us. Where would we be but for the grace of God? These stand out best in stark contrast to the justice and the wrath of God. Essential to understanding the fullness of his character. Nahum helps us in this regard. It helps us to find that point of balance between these two. This is a gruesome chapter. I'll be honest with you about the content of the chapter itself. The judgment described here, the acts of violence described in our passage may be difficult to give a great deal of attention to, but they are worthy of our consideration. If God is in fact infinite in what we regard to be the better attributes, his grace and mercy and love, surely God is infinite in his justice and his wrath as well. This is, uh, this is the last Sunday of the summer break. Teachers and administrators and students alike are all thrilled to hear that announcement. And this happens to be our last Sunday in the prophet Nahum as well. Some of you are far more excited about the conclusion of Nahum than the conclusion of your summer break. Now, I realize that there are times when what Nahum has to say is, can, is it can be challenging to hear. And there is a measure of redundancy about prophetic literature. But this is essential to our understanding of the full character of God, a well-rounded understanding of God that generates in us a healthy sense of the fear of the Lord, even as we delight in the grace and the mercy he has bestowed on us. You want a little fun exercise for the preaching time this morning just to hold the attention of those of you with shorter attention spans? I have learned about myself this morning that I do not have the ability to say the word fortresses. So you may count the number of times I attempt and fail to say that word along the way. Nahum chapter 3. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect for the reading of God's word. Nahum chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Woe to the city of blood. Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. Because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery, 
who betrays nations by her prostitution and clans by her witchcraft. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you that all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than thieves? Set along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river her wall. Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide yourself. You'll seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your strong places. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You've made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like swarming locusts and your scribes like clouds of locusts, which settle on walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off. And no one knows where they are. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. It's a difficult passage, huh? What's described here is gruesome in nature. That's the best term I know to use to describe what Nahum 3 describes. But it is a judgment in the counsels of our God fitting for the city of Nineveh. Verse 1, coupled together with verse 4, explains some of what Nineveh had done to come to this place. What sin, what crime had the Assyrians committed that would be deserving of such severe judgment? Verse 1 begins with the word woe. This is a familiar term in prophetic literature. It comes from funeral experience in the ancient East. Woe is how you would cry out. It's the kind of term that sounds like what it means to to, to, quiet, to cry, to weep, and to wail, to woe the death of someone. Maybe you're familiar with the New Testament period practice of hiring professional mourners to come to the funeral or the memorial service to give adequate expression to the grief and the sorrow, at least hoped to be experienced by those given the death of someone recently. 
I have often said in jest, I, I might implement this practice at my own funeral. I at least want there to be the impression that someone left behind here will miss Wade when he is gone. These mourners would be hired to cry out, to weep, and to wail. It's a word that derives from that setting. Woe is directly related to the idea of grieving someone's recent death. But in prophetic literature and in Nahum chapter 3, the woe is not about someone who has died. The woe is about someone who will die. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. City of blood because of her violence, totally deceitful because of her lies, full of plunder because of her theft, full of prey because of her incessant fixation on identifying the next people to oppress, the next disadvantage to take advantage of. These are the sins of the people of Nineveh. Further in verse 4, there's some explanation as to the nature of her sins, how she went about her violence, her theft, her deceit, her predatory behavior. The Bible says in verse 4, because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who betrays nations by her prostitution and clans by her witchcraft. It's common practice to depict a city or a nation as a woman in biblical literature. In fact, it's common practice to depict any group of people or even a virtue as a woman. Think, for instance, of Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs, or even the virtuous wife of Proverbs chapter 31. It might be a woman of great virtue, as in those examples, or it could be a woman of immorality, as in the, the case of the adulteress of the book of Proverbs, or the city of Nineveh depicted as a woman here in our passage. She's characterized in two ways in our passage, one as a prostitute and one as a sorceress. The idea of Nineveh as a prostitute suggests her seduction of neighboring nations and individuals. She would woo and persuade with her persuasive powers that neighboring nations and individuals would participate in her sin. Not only was Nineveh guilty of her own sin, not only were the citizens of that city guilty of their own individual sin, they were guilty of persuading, of seducing others to join them in their unrighteousness. The idea of Sorcery suggests that not only did she persuade by seduction the involvement of others in her unrighteousness, but some were brought to join her by force. She had seduced the nations to follow her, and she had forced the nations to join her in her efforts at continual unrighteousness. Situated between these two verses that explain to us the nature of Nineveh's sin is this description of the invading army. Nahum likes to do this thing where he begins big and he draws down close, or he begins at a distance and he comes in really near. To bring the passage to this crescendo of, of judgment, verse 2 begins with the sound of the invading army. Moving next to observations about the nature of their weapons, the weapons in their very hands. And then culminates with this statement regarding the outcome of their invasion, the crack of the whip. The rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, and jolting chariot. You can almost hear in your imagination those chariots jostling as they approach the city of Nineveh. 
thump and the thud, the thunder of those galloping horses as this enemy army approached. Charging horsemen, flashing swords, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. This would be the outcome of this invasion. Nineveh would at long last face the penalty for her sins. She would face them fully. Verse 5 marks a transition in our passage. In fact, verses 5 through 7 mark the second unit in our passage. Three verses that give expression to this idea that God will bring shame to the proud. We've been on vacation for the last week, delightfully so. By observation over the past several days, it has occurred to me that often vacation is the place people go to act a fool. Apparently, vacation, or work rather, is the only thing keeping many people from acting crazy endlessly. That may be a positive thing. And it has occurred to me by observation that often there comes with foolishness, with unrighteousness, this spirit of arrogance, this pridefulness, this ego stroke that I am in the moment doing the impermissible and no one can prevent me from doing it. But for the unrighteous, what the Bible teaches in verses 5 through 7 is that the proud will one day be brought low. That your arrogance, your fist shaking in the face of our God will one day be humbled under the hand of his judgment. God says in verse 5, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts to give emphasis to what comes after. I'll lift your skirts over your faces and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I'll throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I'll make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort her? One day, Nineveh, you'll be ashamed of your sin. One day, friends, you'll be ashamed of your sin. That arrogance in the moment, doing the impermissible and doing it scot-free in a way that feels removed from any penalty or consequence for the things that you have done. One day, one day, one day, you'll be embarrassed by the sins you have committed. One day, all who've been drawn like a moth to the flame of your unrighteousness will withdraw and recall. There's a certain magnetism about unrighteousness. It's difficult to quantify, but it exists. There's something about the absence or inhibitions that go away in the throes of unrighteousness that creates a sense or feeling of community. Sometimes I hear, hear people talk about young people and college students and even young adults as though they're running headlong into righteousness just because they woke up one day and decided they'd like to do that. That's seldom the case. Usually young people are running into unrighteousness with great angst in their heart, knowing in the beginning at least that what they do is the wrong thing to do. But there's community in their misdeed. There's a sense of connectedness with others. I often warn our high school seniors and our college students, do not buy the television depiction of the college experience where it's all community, all fellowship, all friends, all the time. It can be a tremendously isolated season of your life, which is why students run 
to sex and drugs and alcohol in the party scene because in that, in the absence of inhibition, there is a strong sense of community. And at the center of all that, at the center of all that, all that are the most popular who have given themselves in many instances to the unrighteousness that draws like moth to the flame others to join them in their godless behavior. But one day, they'll withdraw and recoil. And one day, those at the center, those who, in your eyes, may enjoy the highest degrees of popularity, will be embarrassed by the crimes they've committed and the sins that they have performed. One day, those who have spent their days surrounded by great crowds will find themselves all alone and without a source of comfort. That is precisely what is described in verses 5 through 7. Verses 8 and 10 stand out in our passage as the third unit in our text, but also as probably the most gruesome verses in the book of Nahum itself, which is saying a lot, right? But I want you to note that what is described in verses 8 and 9 and 10 is not a description of God's judgment against the city of Nineveh. It is a description of Nineveh's behavior toward another city. 623, Nineveh invaded Thebes in Egypt and completely annihilated the people of that city. What wasn't annihilated was carried away into captivity, exiled from that city. What's being described here is the reality that God is repaying the violence of Nineveh in kind. Verse 8, the Bible says, Are you better than Thebes? That sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river her wall, Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength, Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. This is a, a dreadful description, right? Not only is the annihilation of the adult population of Thebes described in our passage. But the death of even the infants of that city in the most horrific of ways. These aren't even humane methods for execution, but the dashing of the skulls of small children to put asunder the population of a once great city. Nineveh, Nineveh is the violator, the attacker, in our passage. God speaks here to note for all to hear that the violence of that city will be repaid against that city. What Nineveh had done to Thebes would now be done to them as an act of God's judgment against them. The city of Thebes is in the south of Egypt and it serves as an example to the city of Nineveh in a couple of different ways in our passage. One, Thebes enjoyed many of the advantages that Nineveh in the north enjoyed. Thebes is way down in Egypt. If you think Middle Eastern geography, this will help you to understand and appreciate the significance, the power of the Assyrian army. Nineveh is way up in the northern part of Iraq. Thebes is way down in the southern part of Egypt. When Assyria attacks Thebes in the south of Egypt, they are a long way from home. And yet they tear asunder. They annihilate a city that was well fortified. It had walls. It had water for its barriers. Its rampart was the sea. 
It had a great river that guarded from another direction. It was a well-fortified city. They had all of the military and geographical advantages of Assyria, but they fell. It serves as a reminder to the city of Nineveh that they too can fall, and indeed, they will fall. The second way Thebes functions as an example or a model for the city of Nineveh is that the violence that Assyria visited upon the people of Thebes would now be visited upon the people of Nineveh. God would return in kind their acts of violence. You've heard the cultural proverb, what goes around comes around. More recently, it's become fashionable or in vogue to make reference to karma. That always gets an eye roll response from me when I hear someone make reference to karma. It's just fashionable to say it. Well, one, 99% of the people that say it have no idea what they're talking about, and 100% of the people in the world do not want karma to be a reality. It just sounds cool because you heard someone on reality television say it. The idea itself is advanced, it gets root, it has footing, because there's a modicum of truth about the observation. What you're seeing, what reinforces the cultural proverb, what goes around comes around, or the idea, at least as it's understood in its Western context of karma, is in reality the biblical principle that we refer to as the law of the harvest. You will reap even as you sow. Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. This reinforces the cultural proverb that resonates so well with us this morning. What goes around comes around. Now, by observation, again, there are times when it looks like the unrighteous are getting ahead and the righteous are falling behind. But make no mistake, some seed requires a great deal of time to germinate, but the harvest always comes in. The payday always comes. You may party for a season, but eventually it comes time to pay the band and you will then reap even as you sow, God is returning in kind the violence Nineveh had in the past inflicted even on the city of Thebes. It would be easy for us to look at this passage, to look at the book of Nahum, and dismiss ourselves entirely from the idea of any application concerning what God has to say to the Assyrians. After all, if there's any command, we do a relatively good job of not violating. It is the thou shalt not murder. In fact, as much as I can struggle with the basic commands of God, I'm on a pretty good winning streak when it comes to that particular command. So far, I got 40 years in, hadn't killed anybody yet, right? The kinds of acts of violence that are described and identified with the people of Assyria, Assyria are not the kind of things that we would customarily do ourselves. But I would have you to take note this morning that not every act of violence comes drenched in blood. In fact, many acts of violence in our day are often served with a smattering of flowery justification and advanced with a gentle tone. 
We like to think in terms of the positive impact that our life can make in understated or undervalued ways. For instance, when we give to ministries or we pray for ministries or we have gospel conversations or even perform certain good deeds, it may not be that we're able to see the ultimate outcomes of those acts of generosity or those deeds of righteousness, but we relish the idea that somewhere down the line there are these concentric circles of impact that may function to reward us in the day of judgment with great crowns we would lay at the feet of our Savior Jesus on that great and final day. But seldom do we give any consideration whatsoever to the concentric circles of violence, our dreadful decisions towards sin often create in the lives of our friends, our family, our church, our community, and even the world at large. In the same way those deeds of righteousness stand to impact people in ways that you could never measure this side of heaven, so too to the dreadful decisions that you make with regard to sin impact often in violent ways those within your circle of influence and even beyond you know why you see children doing the things that they're doing now shooting into schools and committing acts of violence against one another you know why they're foul-mouthed children running around all over our society children with impressive rap sheets because they themselves have been victimized, often in lesser ways, but no less victimized by those who are given stewardship over their young lives. And these concentric circles of violence grow and grow and grow generation by generation by generation by generation. This is precisely what Moses means when he says the sins of the father are visited to the second and third and even the fourth generation. We are not exempt from the application of these passages that speak to the violent behaviors of the people of Assyria. And there's a warning in our passage that we guard our life and doctrine lest we find ourselves practitioners of the very sins for which Assyria is here in the passage being judged by God. The next section in our passage, verses 11 through 18, is the longest of the five that we'll cover and it's perhaps the most basic in terms of its application. Here again, Nahum reminds Nineveh once more that her power is no match for God. In verse 11, the Bible says, you'll become drunk. And this is not a reference to the kind of pleasure that can be derived from intoxication. This is a reference to their inability to respond to the onslaught, to the attack of the enemy. You'll become drunk and you'll hide yourself. You'll seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first and shaken they fall right into the mouth of the eater. The idea here is that a fig tree, when well ripened, can be harvested with a gentle shake of the tree. They fall ordinarily into the baskets of it's harvesters, but in this case, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. The city of Nineveh, as described here, is ripe for the judgment of God, and she will soon be picked. Verse 13 says, look, your troops are like women among you. I know it's now culturally inappropriate to suggest there are any physical differences between men and women. 
But the factual reality remains that there are significant differences between men and women, especially in the physical department. Before you think I'm some kind of misogynist, I'll have you to note that I celebrate the physical differences between men and women. Most men I know do. Here the idea is that the strong men of Assyria's army have now been weakened. In a physical sense, they have become like women before their enemies. The gates of your land, those once proud gates that would stave off any enemy invasion, have now been thrown wide open. Fire itself melts the very bars of the gate. Verse 14, the Bible says, draw water for the siege, strength for your fortresses. Step in the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. The idea here is God's inviting them to leverage all of their prepared defenses. God never says, put down your swords and surrender gently. God says, take them up, all of your implements of war, bring your best, all of your prepared defenses. Again, as was stated in chapter two, man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength, for all your strength is no match for the power of our God. Fire will devour you there. Multiply yourselves like the young locusts. Multiply like the swarming locusts. You've made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locust, and your scribes like clouds of locusts which settle on walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. The idea of locust, a locust in prophetic literature is fearsome. You dread the presence of a locust. They're harmless in our part of the world in the southeast. We know about locusts as boys and girls. We would find their shed exoskeleton fixed to a tree. We'd put them on our shirt and we'd be very proud of them and protect them over the course of the day as we played hide-and-go-seek and various other things as children. You've heard them sing. They come in numbers that are manageable where we are and seldom is any damage whatsoever done by the presence of locusts. Even in those years when there are more than usual, locusts seldom do damage to crops or to a harvest in our part of the world. But in an agricultural culture, in the ancient Near East, locusts were dreadful. Because swarming locusts in the numbers in which they would come could devour a harvest in hours. There was no end to the damage that swarming locusts could do in a matter of days. And they often swept across the land from one direction to the other, devouring everything in their way. In the ancient world, when the harvest ran out or was devoured by locusts, there was no Kroger, no Walmart, no Aldi to run to, to buy the canned goods that would sustain you through the winter season. The destruction of a harvest meant famine in the land and often the destruction of a people. But just as quickly as those swarming locusts would come, they would leave. And just as quickly as these masses of population would make their way to the city of Nineveh to drink from broken cisterns, just as soon as the water ran dry, they too would flee, even as swarming locusts, like locusts on a cold day, lighting on a wall. When the sun rises and the warmth meets those insect bodies, they dash and scatter and no one can find them. Verse 18 functions as something of a summary of 
these verses, verses 11 through 17. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. Your time is up. It's over. It's over for Nineveh. We spoke last week, and it's worth noting again this morning, this idea of an earthly dimension of judgment and the spiritual dimension of judgment. The window of opportunity for Nineveh to repent of their sin, to seek that God would relent from the judgment he sought to bring against them had now closed. In the spiritual dimension, there is parallel reality. The day will come when the window of opportunity for our response to the message of the gospel will have closed. You will bow the knee in that day. You will confess with your mouth the lordship of Jesus. But the day of salvation will have long since passed and the day of judgment will have come. If there's, if there's nothing else that we are to derive from the experience of the Ninevites or the Assyrian Empire in general, it is that we would make haste to Jesus before it is forever too late, before the window of opportunity for our repentance closes and in the spiritual dimension in a way that is vastly superior, far more significant than any earthly judgment that might be experienced, we befall the judgment of God against us eternally. Verse 19 serves as the end of our passage and the end of our series. Just one more verse. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who hasn't experienced your constant cruelty? One day all of heaven will rejoice at the service of justice in all the world. For the people of God, there is rejoicing in the notion that one day your most formidable enemies will come under the judgment of God. And yet, at the same time, for the same people of God, there is the warning that we guard our life and doctrine, lest we become practitioners of the very acts of violence for which Nineveh finds herself judged. I am convinced, now more than ever, that what God intends is that we would see the books of Jonah and Nahum as a pair. There are only two books in the Bible that are addressed to the city of Nineveh, to the nation of Assyria, Jonah and Nahum. In fact, you might argue if you make a small exception for the book of Obadiah, which seems to have Edom as its focus, that there are only two books in the Old Testament that have nations outside of Israel as their focus. Those are both focused on Nineveh, both focused on Assyria, and both end the same way. Only two books in the Bible end with a question. We assume the question is rhetorical given that no answer is provided, but there's almost an air of expectation that some response would be issued. Who has not experienced your constant cruelty? And Jonah ends with a question as to whether or not Jonah's ever going to come around to the compassion that God was pleased to show the people of Nineveh. There's a touch of irony about the book of Nahum that also operates in a way that is compatible with the book of Jonah. The name Nahum means compassion. And yet for the city of Nineveh, none could be found. Jonah helps us to see what we might regard as the brighter side of the character of our God. 
Our impressions are faulty, but that's in all likelihood our impression. The compassion that God was pleased to show the people of Nineveh, whereas Nahum has its focus on the service of God's justice and the severity of his wrath poured out on those who would spurn the offer of his grace and mercy in the repentance of their sin. It's a difficult thing in preaching and teaching, and it's a difficult thing in the development of your personal theology to find the right point of balance. Scarcely is it ever found. Virtually every ministry, at some point along the way, every teaching ministry is accused, at least, of erring in one direction or the other. There's a certain glib delight taken by some in the things of hell that suggests to me that they've not understood the full magnitude of God's justice. If I had a nickel for every person who'd ever asked me to preach more about hell or a series of sermons on hell, most of which have issues in their life that ought to generate fear and trepidation and great concern with regards to the matters of hell. A certain glib delight taken in that idea. We teach these things, we preach these things, not with a smile on our face, but with a tear in our eye. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are those that want to hear only of God's grace and his love and his mercy who seem to have taken those aspects of his character as license for sin rather than an invitation to leverage that freedom for righteousness in their life and the advancement of the gospel in all the world. There's such imbalance with regards to these issues. But I can tell you where the point of balance exists. It's at Calvary, the wooden cross, where God's only son, Jesus, bled and died for you and for me. The fierce wrath of God exhibited in that his fierce wrath was poured out in full on his son, Jesus, a testament to the interest of our God in the service of justice. No sin would go unpunished. Not one sin in all of human history would go unpunished. Either you'll pay the penalty personally, or it'd find its place in the bitter cup of God's wrath drank by the only begotten Son of God at Calvary's cross. The other side of the reality of what Jesus does at the cross is to demonstrate God's great love toward us. It's there that we are lavished with grace and mercy and forgiveness. There Jesus takes on himself our unrighteousness and offers us in exchange his perfect righteousness. It is a beautiful thing that Jesus has done for us at the cross. Victory secured and attested to by his resurrection three days after his death is our substitute succumbing to the weight of God's wrath against sin. Aren't you glad for what God's done for you? Don't you see the amazing nature of God's grace all the more against the stark contrast of his justice and his wrath towards sin? God has in his hands the power of life and death. The breath in your lungs is in the power, it's in the hand of our God. The very beating of your heart is contingent 
upon the pleasure of God that your heart would take the next beat. And yet you have sinned against him grievously. In spite of what we've done, as an exhibition of his love for all the world to see, his sinless son was hung on a tree between heaven and earth as our substitute, paying the full penalty for our sin. You need only respond to this great expression of God's love for us by turning away from the things of this world and believing on Jesus as the all-sufficient substitute who's paid the penalty for your sin and offers forgiveness full and free. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you, God, for the message of the gospel. Lord, I can't help but to reflect not only on the severity with which you deal with sin, but on the severity of Christ's anguish on the cross. The very idea, God, that what Jesus suffered there was the result of the sin that I have done, the sin that I will do. The idea that in spite of that, he would accredit to my account his perfect righteousness. God, I, I don't have the words. Lord, I pray that this morning in this congregation, you would give eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern the beauty of the gospel and all that you've done for us. I pray, God, that you would save some this morning, that there'd be some here shaken by this picture of who you are in reality. Now, seeing you for the first time for who you are, and in light of that, seeing themselves rightly for the first time. Sinners in desperate need of grace and forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. God, give us eyes to see that, eyes to see our need, and a heart that would gladly run away from the wickedness of this world in repentance and in faith toward Jesus. God, I, I pray that your will would be done in these moments. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.